So nice and quiet in here. We actually had a few minutes between the uh, first service and now Sunday school, so we're ready to go. Uh, We now are going to cover the last category of offerings. Probably at this point, you are thinking to yourselves, wow, the Old Testament Levitical system was really complicated. And you would be right. It was complicated. No doubt the priests had to continually remind themselves how to do the offerings. They, uh, individual Israelites had to likewise continually be up on rehearsing what their responsibilities were depending on what they were currently experiencing and the sins they were guilty of. This morning we talk about the guilt offering. And here now, the emphasis is on, well, what can be both objective guilt, because we know specifically what we're guilty of, or it could be subjective, the torment that uh, people suffer from unresolved guilt. There's something about uh, the, the, you know, uh, the way the Lord created our, our being, our, our mental processes, that if we don't have resolution of guilt, then that can make us quite miserable. And there are people all across America, all across the world, and they are continually dealing with unresolved guilt because they don't know the Lord and they don't know how to deal with their guilt. So they go to a psychologist, maybe, and the psychologist tells them, your guilt is not real. The problem is you were raised, perhaps, by parents who were overly strict with you, and they told you there are actually ways to behave and ways not to behave. And uh, you've behaved the way they said to you not to behave, and now... It's all their fault. They, they, they put this, this uh, idea in your head that you ought not to do something. Who are they to do that? So just forget what your parents said. Forget what uh, your restrictive upbringing led you to believe. And just forget the fact that, uh, you know, you've got this guilt problem. It's not really real. Here, I'll give you a medication, and that will help you get over your guilt. Because guilt can get so severe, people can get depressed. They can uh, just live miserable lives. I used to work with a lot of them. Not at Bob Jones, but uh, when I was a process engineer, I used to work with a lot of guilt-ridden people. You know how they dealt with their guilt? Mm Mm-hmm, you guessed it. They would drink. They They would get inebriated. And for a short period of time, they would supposedly escape their guilt. And they, that's the way they dealt with it. They got drunk. Of course, drugs. That's another way the world system wants to try to deal with guilt. So you, you smoke 
bit when I was in school, the big thing was uh, marijuana. Good grief, you'd go to my, one of my buddies and I would go to, to the guy's dorm and, and go around witnessing. Some of the rooms, we'd knock on the door, they'd open the door, and literally, it looked like there was a fire in their room. It was marijuana smoke, okay? For some reason back in those days, people liked to smoke pot and listen to Ravi Shankar play his sitar. Have you ever heard sitar music? Well, go to an Indian restaurant. They're going to play it there, maybe, and it just kind of goes everywhere, you know. Join, twang, ding, you know. It doesn't have any melody. Drives you cuckoo over five, you know, more than five minutes of listening to it. Uh, but that was that was the cool thing to do. Either that or some wild rock group like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> what a name for a group, Led Zeppelin. So anyway, we'd have to oftentimes. When we saw the condition of the room, have to excuse ourselves. Well, we were going to come in and uh, try to witness to you uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is, I don't want to breathe so much marijuana smoke that I get stoned, basically. So we're just going to come back another time when you're not so actively engaged in this behavior crazy what people will do in the world to escape their guilt. All right, so God has a way of dealing with this, and it's the guilt offering. The Hebrew name for this class of offerings is a word called asham. Kind of interesting the way I used to remember this word for vocabulary tests in Hebrew was I would say, oh, Reminds me of I'm ashamed, asham. So that was the easy, easy way to remember it. Now, what does, what does the word mean? Essentially, it has a meaning of legal culpability. In other words, when someone would know what the Mosaic law specified, and yet he would break that stipulation then he was legally culpable to, as a sinner before his holy God. And that would create guilt. The awareness of culpability brings objective guilt that then weighs on the sinner's conscience and becomes not only objective, but subjective too. And you can't tell people, well... You know, just forget about it. No, that doesn't work. Guilt never goes away. It has to be dealt with. So, the Old Testament believer could deal with guilt by bringing this class of offering. Now, this is wonderful. This is God's grace to his people. I I just get so upset when I read somebody... Uh, who will say, boy, look at all these legal requirements that God put his people Israel through. Why did he do such an onerous thing to them? This is just terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I, I look at that and I think, they have no idea. 
how gracious God was to his people. Here is a way to deal with guilt. What grace this is. A unique featuring, a feature of this guilt offering involved restitution to make matters right. If that guilt stemmed from some <clears throat> aspect of defrauding your fellow Israelite, or anybody else for that matter, then there was <clears throat> uh, put in place restitution. There's nothing like restitution to, as well as a, a realization that God is satisfied with the offering, so our fellow man is satisfied with restitution and, and the wrong we have done can be made right. All right, so these two aspects then, an offering to cover the sin that we have done before the Lord and a restitution of 20% of the value of some way we've defrauded another person. And so let me recommend to you a uh, good handling of this whole section. The author is Jay Sklar, and I would argue that he has what I've seen is the best uh, handling of this class of offerings in his book called Leviticus. And this is in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series. Now, how many of you have a Tyndale Old Testament commentary in your uh, library? Aha! We have some. Good. The thing that's nice about this commentary set is that although it's usually quite thorough, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not bombing you with technical details that you just you know, can't understand. No, no, no. This is, and it's usually very practically oriented. Good application. And so if you wanted to buy or the whole set of Old Testament commentaries. These things usually are not excessively lengthy. You're not going to break the shelf on your uh, bookshelf by buying the, the whole set. They have the Old Testament and the New Testament also. Be a good start for developing a Bible study library where you have at least one good commentary on every book of the Bible. Okay, first category requiring guilt offering is inadvertently profaning a holy item. Notice the key word, inadvertently. Can anybody think of a time in Scripture where we have somebody who profaned a holy item on purpose? Now, to profane something means to act as if something that God has declared, set apart for him, entirely for him, and we take it for our own use. Okay? If somebody does this with a high hand, it usually didn't turn out well for them. Can somebody think of someone who did this? Yes. No. Did you... Did you hear what she said when David ate the showbread? Oh, wow. 
Uh, you had to bring that up, didn't you, Marilyn? <laughs> That's a whole nother hour of discussion. What about when David was and his men were starving to death and they, they were fleeing from Saul and in the, in the wilderness they found uh, the, the tabernacle. They, David asked the high priest if he could have the um, showbread that was about to be discarded and, and uh, new showbread brought to replenish that, which they would do weekly. Well, the priest gave him the holy bread that had been on the table of incense or on the the table of showbread and um, he gave it to his men and they kept from starving to death. Right? No, that doesn't fit this and I don't want to get into that but that's that's a really tough question. Uh, Do you realize how tough of a question ethically that is? How about somebody else? Can somebody else? Yeah. But when uh, Saul offered a sacrifice, he was told to wait for Samuel. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. Uh, there, when <clears throat> when uh, the Israel Israelite army was about to fight the Philistines, and uh, Samuel had said, "Now you wait." till I come and I'm going to offer an offering and we're going to get the Lord's direction here, how we should fight this battle. And, uh, you know, Samuel says, you just wait. Saul uh, was getting antsy because people in his army were defecting. They were going and hiding in caves and they... Uh, we're not happy with the fact that there had been no offering and Samuel wasn't there. And so Saul went ahead and took the sacrifices and he offered them. Was Saul from the tribe of Levi? No, from Benjamin. And so Samuel shows up, you get the idea, right after Saul's done with a sacrifice. And Samuel looks at him and says, what have you done? Well, he said, people were defecting from me. I didn't think you were coming. And so I forced myself and and I offered these sacrifices. No, sorry, that wasn't your responsibility. That was not your privilege as a sanctified Levitical priest. So now the Lord would have established your kingdom permanently. But as it is, because you've disobeyed and you have mishandled my holy sacrifice, then God has rejected you from king, being king. God's going to find a king after his own heart. And so... Wow, that was serious, and that's a good example of what we're talking about here. So let's read verses 14 through 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith, now that term, breach of faith, basically means 
because uh, this, there's a possibility of acting in covenantal disloyalty. Uh, imagine, here you have a marriage and two people enter a marriage covenant. Then the expectation is you're not going to have one or the other or both commit adultery. That would be a, an act of covenantal disloyalty. And so this, this then, we have the, the Mosaic Covenant established at Mount Sinai with all these stipulations. God's going to take care of his people. They must respond in obedience to his covenant. But if anybody wants to break that, that covenant and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram, a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels. Now, a shekel, by most people's estimation, was somewhere around four ounces. So this would be um, plural, silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, because of the fact that a shekel before the advent of coinage was weighed, essentially, and there were different stipulations for, uh, you know, one area of Israel might have a little bit heavier shekel, another part of Israel might have a lighter one, and then uh, in order to forestall, not understanding how much it was, they had a shekel of the sanctuary. It was standardized to be uh, so much weight of, of silver. So we're not just exactly sure how much silver was involved, but uh, perhaps you've been to a coin store sometimes uh, here recently. Have you ever looked at how much an ounce of 0.999% pure silver costs? Uh, wow. I mean, uh, get spot price, and then you get a premium uh, price, and so these, these uh, coins probably are going to be well over $30 an ounce. Okay, so we're not exactly sure what this was, but it's a fair amount of money. And uh, by the way, too, what had happened to this uh, shekel of the sanctuary by the time of Christ? The Pharisees and some of the leaders of the nation had developed this whole aspect of money changing. Okay, so what they would do is someone would travel from wherever they lived in, in Israel and they would come to Jerusalem for a festival. And when they offered a sacrifice at the temple, they didn't want to carry the ram of the sacrifice or whatever lamb or whatever they were offering all the way from home. So they would bring money with them and then they would take the money to the temple and they would buy a temple shekel, standardized amount. But what were the money changers doing? Well, it was, they were making a lot of money off of this exchange. The exchange rate was highly favorable to the money changers. And they were getting wealthy on this rather than 
being concerned with uh, making sure the offerer wasn't cheated, they were raking it in. And uh, they, were, they had per- so perverted the sacrificial system that uh, our Savior overturned their, their tables and drove them out uh, because zeal for his house consumed him. But this was not the way it was originally. All right. This involved a breach of faith, as I say, uh, covenantal unfaithfulness by misappropriation of any of the Lord's uh, holy things. And so, uh, how could this happen, do you suppose? Well, uh, we'll talk about that in a sec. As I mentioned here, the sinner had to repay the holy thing and add a 20% restitution. Notice uh, here in verse uh, 15, verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss with the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it, in other words, 20% extra, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. There you have it. The only way to deal with guilt is to experience the fact that God forgives your sin. No other way to experience freedom from guilt. For instance, in Leviticus 22, verse 14, we have something of an example of how this could happen. A, a, a ill or an inadvertent use of something that was holy for private use. That's called profaning something that is holy. So turn, if you would please, to Leviticus 22. And in verse 14, text says this. If anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to give, it to, the, uh, to give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy thing. For I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. All right, so how could it be that, let's say you have, uh, oh, Maybe the the priest has received a peace offering and uh, part of the peace offering would be used as support of the priest, nice uh, chunk of meat. How could an average Israelite ever end up with meat like that and consume it, uh, not realizing, I guess, that that was holy item and then later, out, fi- later on finding out it was devoted to the Lord and for consumption by the priests only. Well, we don't know exactly how that would happen. Maybe some really bad news Israelite would steal the meat and then sell it to somebody. And somebody buys it, 
doesn't realize where it came from. And he eats it. And then later on, someone tells him, by the way, did you know you ate holy meat? Uh Uh-oh. Now then, this person has to bring an offering, a very expensive offering, a male sheep, a ram. Apparently this was a pretty expensive her, uh, you know, flock animal. And a, he had to pay a lot of money to get freedom from his guilt. Not just this ram, but as well, 20% of the value of the meat that he ate inadvertently. All right, now, this has application for today as well. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, Paul um, basically goes back to this Levitical re, uh, reality, and uh, he, he says, you know, we are individually, as members of the body of Christ, we are holy to the Lord. Why? Because by the shed blood of Christ and salvation, he has bought us out of the slave market of sin. And now, everything we are, including our bodies, belongs to him. All right? We we are owned by the Lord. Both body and soul and spirit, everything we are, belongs to him. Now, the Corinthians had asked Paul, So, Paul, what do you think? Is it okay for us to utilize the services of a prostitute here in Corinth? Corinth was a wicked place. Prostitution was very rampant. Uh, It was a sea, coast, town. Sailors would come to town. They'd engage the the, the services of the prostitute. And some of God's people... We're doing this. And so they asked Paul, what do you think about this, Paul? And he said, no doubt Paul was horrified. What? Don't you know you aren't your own? You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. It's not up to you to determine what to do. Should I take uh, my body, which God owns, and join it to a prostitute? That's, that's horrendous. So we have to realize then, this is, this is a complete scriptural view of who owns us. We are not our own. Therefore, when it comes time to decide anything we do with our bodies, you know, we, we sit down. Have you ever been to one of these <clears throat> uh, all-you-can-eat buffets? We were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not too long ago, and there's this place called Shady Maple, uh, and you can go in there and eat as much food as you want, and there's a lot of it. We didn't go there, but we went to another one like it. We watched a, a little review video before we went up there about Shady Maple, and this guy was going through, and eating and eating and eating. It made Linda and me sick to our stomachs just looking at how much he was eating. 
a total glutton. He was utilizing his body to consume, I don't know how many calories we watched him eat. It was just truly jaw-dropping. Okay, so when it comes time even to decide how much we're going to eat, are we going to be gluttonous or are we going to stop before we reach that level, whatever that level is? Uh, this, this is, how do we look at our, the way we use our time? How do we determine how we're going to use our money? We've just, everything we are and have is the Lord's. And because of that, there's no, well, I suppose there might be something neutral, but uh, most things are either good or bad usages of everything we are and have. And so this makes, this makes living the Christian life all the more accountable for what we do. Very important concept. All right, next, second category of guild offering, offering for an unknown sin. Now, this category drives commentators wild because they say, how would they be expected to make an offering for a sin they didn't even know they had committed? Once again, Sklar, I think, has a good way of handling this. This fits the situation when an Israelite senses guilt. Look, when we experience guilt, that doesn't come from nowhere. And the Lord's chastisement for his sin. All right, so if you commit a sin and you're not aware that it even is a sin, God can bring a chastening into our lives as well as guilt. But he doesn't know what specific sin he has committed. Has this ever happened to you? I can remember after I was, I was saved, I was confronted with the necessity of being a good witness, an evangelist for Christ. I was in my undergrad program at Syracuse University, and my, one of my best Christian friends and I, after we had heard this, this message, we decided, let's make a pact between the two of us that we're going to go out witnessing to students at least three times a week. It's taken an hour, or what we finally ended up doing was we spent a lot of time witnessing to students uh, in the dining hall because they, they might have been at a table all by themselves. And so we'd go up and just say, hey, can we join you? And, uh, yeah, sure, have a seat. You know, and uh, we, would, we would witness to the person. We witnessed to hundreds of people like this. But, um, you know, it, it's especially the case that sins of omission are very hard to recognize until they're pointed out. So I'd been saved for a long time by now, but I hadn't been in a good church where somebody had had uh, preached to me 
uh, as m you know, probably most people here have been hearing since the time you were just little, that it's our responsibility to preach the gospel. Not somebody else's responsibility, it's ours. And so you might say to yourself, well, nobody ever challenged me like that before. Now I realize I've been sinning by omission for all this time. Oh, but there's a difference between somebody under the old covenant versus somebody in the new covenant. We have a tremendous difference here. The person in the Old Testament would bring a male sheep, a ram, but no restitution was required. But in the, in the new covenant, we have one sacrifice made by our Savior once for all that covers every single category of sin we could commit, including sins of omission, which is the trickiest part of all. Let's go ahead and, and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's a kind of a key word that occurs <clears throat> at strategic places throughout the uh, epistle of Hebrews. And it's related to a group of words that means the goal or that means a perfect state of something. Uh, it's a telos group of words. And uh, here in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 12, here's what the text tells us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. There we go. He has perfected us in position in Christ. We are completely sanctified. That's our position. Now, we need to work out that position in our experience we call that sanctification. But this is total sanctification done for us through the shed blood of Christ at a moment in time when we were saved, and now we are perfect. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's our positional perfection in Christ, and our experiential daily sanctification. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Talk about 
a resolution of guilt? What does John say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why did John add that last phrase? Could this be the type of thing we're talking about here? An inadvertent sin of omission by our own ignorance? So no matter what the category of sin, we have forgiveness in Christ. Confession of sin to our one high priest who accomplished complete redemption through one sacrifice as he gave himself to die on Calvary's cross in our place. And through faith in him, we have forgiveness of sin. Now no longer do we need to bring a sacrifice as they did in the Levitical system. We don't need to do repeated sacrifices throughout our lives. Our salvation is a done deal, complete for all eternity. How does that allow any room for guilt? I think, though, we should see that there still are, in both the first category and the, second, and the last category, there still is the need for restitution. And here we have, in the final category, uh, offering for the misuse of the Lord's name in a false oath. And this is perhaps the most serious of all the guilt sins you can think of. Let's look at verse six, uh, uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, <clears throat> and uh, oh, we've got to get back to Leviticus. Leviticus 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to, Ma- to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, that concept of breach of faith is once again the idea of covenantal unfaithfulness. We aren't paying good enough attention to what he said is sin and what isn't sin. How is it that the Lord is basically blasphemed when we do this? He deceives his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it swearing falsely. There's the idea. He took an oath involving the Lord's name. Okay, so let's say you have a situation like what um, we experienced in my hunting club last year. Our hunt club president had a sidearm, a very expensive para-ordinance 45 caliber semi-automatic weapon. And he would wear it on a holster uh, and uh, he was ready in case a rabid coyote tried to get him or something. Uh, 
You know, if we all, most guys who are out in the woods all the time always carry some kind of a sidearm. Well, what happened was when he was riding his ATV or just walking along or bending over to do something, he doesn't know how he lost it, but he lost his very expensive gun. He couldn't find it. We all looked. We never found it either. So, my guess is, it's out there in the woods, rusting as we speak. But what if I had gone out looking for it, and I had found it? And I put it in my backpack, and I didn't give it back to him. And then later on, he asks me, have you found my gun? And I say, As the Lord lives, I haven't found it. Wow. The seriousness of something like that. Now I'm dragging the Lord into my sin. And this was a possibility for the Israelite as well. And you talk about something that would produce guilt. Well, this would certainly do it. This guilt offering involves someone who has defrauded a fellow Israelite and then has sworn a false oath in the Lord's name that he is innocent. Ooh, that's bad. One time, my wife and I just bought a house here in Greenville. When we had moved back here from Wisconsin, I had been teaching at Maranatha Baptist Bible College for four years, five years, what was it? Well, it was a period of time. And now we're back in uh, Greenville, year is 1991. We bought a house, and we realized quite uh, quickly after we bought the house, it needed landscaping. Now, the, the side of our house slopes down to Half Mile Lake very quickly. What it was happening was... Uh, when it would rain hard, I had a, a gutter that came down on uh, the south side of my house that emptied out. There was no, no uh, pipe to, to make it go down towards the lake or anything. And it would rain hard, and I ended up with the Grand Canyon on my side yard because that water was sluicing out of the gutter so hard, it was washing the dirt into the lake. It was just like... Wow, this is what am I going to do about this? So we hired a landscaper, had a landscape architect draw up the plans to our house. And this landscape architect very carefully specified everything about what this landscaper was supposed to do. She even specified the depth of the mulch in our flower beds. What kind of trees went here, there, and everywhere. Specified the parameters for an irrigation system, sprinkler system. Well, okay, so I hired this, this landscaper, and he started to work, and then after a few days, one of his workers came to me, and he said, my boss is cheating the living daylights out of you. He's doing everything cheaply as he can possibly do, giving you crummy plant material. He hired Bozo the Clown to do your irrigation system. 
I can't in any good conscience continue to work for this guy. Do you know what he made? Very sure I understood that he was a Christian. Oh, so I thought, well, I, here's a Christian brother. He's not going to defraud me, but he was cheating me up one side and down the other. And even this unsaved fellow couldn't work for him anymore. That is the kind of thing we're talking about here. This type of sin is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke Matthew 5, 23 through 24. If you bring an offering and you remember that your brother has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother idea, make restitution to him, and then come and, and offer your sacrifice. One time, <clears throat> I was sitting in my office at, you know, at, at a school in the seminary, and I got a telephone call from a former student. Dr. Yakeley, I need to confess something to you. Years ago when I was in your class, Remember, we used to have us keep record of how much time we spent on Bible reading. I said, yeah, I remember that. Why? He said, I made my Bible reading report up out of thin air. I never did the Bible reading. I said, let me get this straight. You cheated with Bible reading report? If you're going to cheat about something, pick anything other than how much time you spent reading the scripture. He says, what can I do about it? If you want to take away my diploma, go ahead. Because I am under such guilt about this, I, I, can't, stand, I can't stand myself anymore. So I'll accept any penalty you give. I said, look, I can't take back your diploma That's not possible. I won't do that. I just want you to know I forgive you. And if you've confessed it to the Lord, he forgives you. Now let's consider it done. Done with. Guilt can really weigh on people. Thank the Lord we have the sin of guilt offering. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and for the instruction of it. We're thankful for the perfect sacrifice of our Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.